a Cape Cod lobster diver is recovering from injuries after he says he got caught in the mouth of a humpback whale. Our David Beenick just spoke with this man and is, in li is live in Wellfleet. David, this is unbelievable. Absolutely, Maria. It is a whale of a tail. Some might say a whopper of a fish story, but this one comes with eyewitnesses. He's trying to get me out. Still in scrubs from his trip to the hospital, Michael Packard has pains in his legs and a story of biblical proportions. Packard was diving off his lobster boat, was near the bottom when he says all of a sudden he felt as if he'd been hit by a truck. And everything went black. And all I could feel was just muscle and skin all around me. Packard says he was in total darkness and he could feel the whale's movement in the water. But at first he didn't realize what was happening. It was like... Did I just get bit by a shark or no, it's not a shark. I'm in a whale's mouth. You figured that out while you're inside the whale. Yes. He struggled, thought about his wife and two sons and thought he might die. Then after about 20 or 30 seconds, he says the whale spit him out. And then all of a sudden I saw light and white water everywhere. And all of a sudden I was thrown from his mouth, he, he was shaking his head, trying to eject me out of his mouth. Packard's shipmate saw him come flying out of the water. The captain of a charter boat that was nearby says he did too. Wasn't sure what it was. Then when I saw the, the white flipper fin on the side, I go, that's a whale. And then all of a sudden I see Mike feet first coming out of the water like this. I, I think I was in shock a bit. I, I had to actually pull over and call him back and... and and say, what What did you tell me? Packard says the whale was a humpback about 35 to 40 feet long that might have mistaken his scuba bubbles for a school of fish. He says the last thing he saw was the whale's tail swimming away. As soon as I landed in the water and was floating there in excruciating pain, I was like, oh my God, I'm alive. What a story. Well, Packard says he does have some pain in his legs, but the whale never broke the skin. Packard says he plans to be back in the water as soon as he's feeling a bit better. In fact, he says he feels very lucky. While he was at the hospital, a nurse came up and asked him to jot down some lottery numbers. June 11th, uh, I turned on uh, social media and I saw that story. And, uh, and it was proof to me that Jesus loves me because uh, my birthday was June 10th and I'm preaching on Jonah on, on June 20th. And so I just felt like God said, Scott, it was your birthday. I know it's a day late, but here is the perfect introduction for your, your sermon on Jonah. So if anybody needs proof that, that uh, Jesus uh, you know, loves Scott, this, this story is it. Michael Packard is his name and he was swallowed by a whale. Uh, humpback whale, and uh, I guess it was a pretty long 30 or 45 seconds there, and uh, he says he wants to get back in the water. I'm not sure I would ever get back in the water again if I had gotten swallowed by a whale, but, uh, but he did. Now, before we jump into uh, that, that message today on Jonah, I want to do two things. One, I want to speak to, to uh, Father's Day. 
Uh, today is, uh, it's a unique day, you know, um, it's different than Mother's Day, you know, in the church, we have like three big attendance days, there's Christmas, there's Easter, and there's Mother's Day, you know, all the moms are like, I want to go to church, and then all the dads are like, it's Father's Day, I don't want to go to church, so the fact that you're here, like, I, I want to acknowledge that and appreciate that, uh, but I also want to acknowledge that, that like Mother's Day, Father's Day includes a wide variety of experiences because we represent a wide variety of relationships with our dads. And for some of you, your your dad is a source of tremendous joy. He was a gift and he has shaped who you are today in really positive ways. For others of you, you grew up without a dad or maybe you wish you grew up without a dad because your dad was the source of a lot of pain and trauma. Some of the people in the room today that you are the dad of children, either biologically or through foster or through adoption or as a stepdad, and you're navigating those challenges. For some of you, you're a grieving dad because you've lost a child or you're estranged from a child or you wanted to be a dad and that child didn't make it into this world. And some of you have picked up the mantle of fathering, even though those aren't your kids. You're a father figure. You're a mentor. Um, You've become like a dad to them. And so in the midst of all of that, we want to acknowledge that being a dad is an incredibly difficult calling. And it's a special thing. And so often what happens on Mother's Day is we raise up moms. And on Father's Day, we beat down dads. And that is not my intention today. I'm just glad that you're here. You kind of push through those variety of emotions. And I hope today is a really life-giving time for you. I also want to get you caught up. If you haven't been with us, we're in a series this summer called Relentless. We're working our way through this overlooked and uh, underexplored section of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. These 12 books between uh, Hosea and Malachi that tell the story of God speaking to his people with a relentless love, a relentless mercy, a relentless pursuit that he is going after them. And so, so far we've talked about Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and now we're on to Jonah. So we're about a third heading towards halfway through this series. Now we're going to jump in today to this message about Jonah. And I want to acknowledge that I think for a lot of people, they go, oh yeah, I've heard of that story, you know, like the guy in the video, you know, he got swallowed by a whale, you know. And we, we kind of hear, if you grew up in church, this story even from a young age. But here's the problem for a lot of you, if, if you've heard about Jonah before, especially if you grew up in church, that there's more here than you've heard before. This is the problem, I think, sometimes of being overly familiar with God's word or sections of God's word, that you're hard-hearted to hearing it. And so I just want to invite you today that if you think you know everything about Jonah, I want to invite you to kind of check those preconceived notions at the door and step into today with a little bit more openness and ask God to speak to you and show you something maybe you've never heard before. And if you've never heard the story of Jonah before, then uh, I hope this is really helpful for you. A little bit of background on Jonah if you're taking notes. Jonah was a real man. Now you go, Scott, why is that significant? Well, twofold. I'm going to use the word story a lot today, but that isn't to say that this is a made-up story. It is a real-life story. But there are many people who believe that Jonah was not a real, a real story, that it was a, a fable, a parable, some sort of allegory, that it didn't literally happen. 
And, and I, I don't subscribe to that view, primarily because of the words of Jesus. We'll read one of these passages later on today, but in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11, Jesus refers to Jonah as if he was a real person. Jesus describes the, the impact of Jonah's life as if those people who were impacted by him were real people. So because Jonah treat, is treated by Jesus as a real person, I think we should treat him as a real person too. Jonah was a Jewish prophet from the land of Zebulun. Now, since most of you aren't experts at ancient Israeli uh, geography, I'm going to give you a little help here. He's from this town called Gath Hefer, right there. It's really far up in the north in Israel. The bottom of that picture, you see Samaria, the capital of Israel. If you go down even off the map, you get down to Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. So he's, he's from way up in the north, the tribe of Zebulun. He ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II over a 40-year period. And if you've been here in this series, I mentioned we've covered some other prophets so far. Those are Hosea and Amos. And Hosea and Amos were actually contemporaries of Jonah. They were prophesying at the same time and dealing with many similar things. Now, let me tell you before I give you the big idea real quick. I think Jonah is a harder book than most of us realize. And it speaks to a challenge that I think all of us face in some way or another. Because here's the big idea. God loves the people we don't like, and he calls us to take his gospel to them. God loves the people that we don't like, and he calls us to take his gospel to them. It doesn't matter how spiritual, spiritually mature, experienced you are in church. There are people you don't like. And here's the thing. God loves those people. And not only does he love them, I believe he's calling us in the same way he calls Jonah to move towards them because his gospel is for them too. Today, we're going to share through this book, seven important truths about how God works. And if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Jonah today. As I mentioned, Jonah is uh, near the back third of your Bible. It's after the book of Obadiah and it's before the book of Micah. And uh, if you hit the book of Matthew, you've gone too far, head back towards the front. It's a, it's a short book. It's like 47 verses. Uh, so I timed myself. This is kind of my normal track record in this series. I timed myself. It took me about six and a half minutes to read it out loud. Again, not that long of a read. I'd encourage you to read it this week. But in Jonah chapter 1, we're going to see the intro to this book. And I want you to invite you to stand. We won't stand for reading all the passages today. But I want us to honor God's word and recognize that... These are not my words. These are not your words. These are his words. And then Kelly, if you could just advance this section for me. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish, which you'll notice is not the city God sent him to, from the Lord's presence, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it, into the ship, to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. God, I pray that today we would be open-hearted, 
open-eared and open-eyed. I pray that our experience with the story of Jonah would not be a barrier to you speaking to us. And I pray that you might reveal in us the places you're trying to realign and reorient towards you and your heart today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now, this, this passage, Jonah 1, 1 through 3, gives us our first truth about how God works. God issues uncomfortable callings. God's in the business of calling his people to things that make them uncomfortable. Now, we live in a world today where often the way we discern how God is working is we say, as well, as God opening doors, which is kind of a Christianese for, are things easy? But according to the scriptures, some of the best signs that you're pursuing what God has for you is not that it's easy, but that it's uncomfortable and it's hard. God calls us to hard and difficult things. And that's what happens for Jonah. He's preaching to his people. Elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us that Jonah's previous message to Israel was that they were going to take more land. And they did. Everybody wants to be the prophet for that, you know? You're going to grow your territory. And he's speaking to his own people. But God shows up to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and says, Hey, Jonah, I want you to leave the place where you're comfortable. I want you to leave the people that you're known by and that you know. And I want you to leave and go to these people in Nineveh, and I want you to preach to them. Now, the problem is, is that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was already the enemy of the people of Israel. Later, Possibly 40 to 70 years later, Assyria is going to destroy Samaria and Israel. They're going to take it over. And so the calling that God puts on, on Jonah, the uncomfortable calling, he says, I want you to go to your enemies, go into their city, and then preach to them that I might show them mercy. Remember, God loves people you don't like and sends you to preach his gospel to them. This calling shows up in Jonah's life in, in a way that is without invitation or his approval. God didn't say, hey, Jonah, I've got an invitation for you. Would you just like a calendar request, an outlook? Would you just say yes or no? Do you accept or reject it? No, no. God says, this is the calling I'm giving you. I didn't ask your permission. I'm not asking your blessing. And I'm inviting you to follow me. And so often what happens in our lives is that God calls us to things that we didn't ask for, that we didn't see coming, and that press us beyond our comfort zone. For many of you, that is the calling of fatherhood. I'll tell you the very first time that the doctor put my son in my arms, I felt the uncomfortable calling of fatherhood. I was terrified. What am I doing? I'm I responsible for this little thing? I, I got to take care of this little thing? If you ask my wife, I'm not even going to take care of myself, you know? Like, and I'm taking care of you. And, and for every dad that I know, that uncomfortable calling looks different. For, for some dads, it's, it's being emotionally available to their kids. You're really good at going to work and bringing home provision for the family. You're just not good at being there for your family. And for some, it, it's, it's the discipline of, of, of taking your kids into experiences that maybe you weren't given and you don't feel comfortable with, but you want them to have. 
Maybe it's wading into conversations with your kids that your dad didn't have with you or had poorly with you. Maybe it's that, that your spouse is, is better at articulating things of faith, and yet your kids need to see and hear you articulating things of faith so they think that this isn't just a show on Sunday, but they see that it's real tomorrow. For so many fathers, there are uncomfortable pieces of that calling. And even if you're not a father, there are uncomfortable pieces of your calling too. So I just want to encourage you that God is going to call you into purposes and plans he has for you. But be prepared. One of the signs that God is in it is probably going to be that you don't want to be. That you're going to be uncomfortable and that you're going to be stretched. Because that's the story of Jonah. So Jonah runs away. I pick the story in verse 4. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. And the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. There were no atheists on that ship. They were all calling out to their gods. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and he'd stretched out and he'd fallen into a deep sleep. The second important truth about how God works is that some storms in our lives are gifts from God. Sometimes God brings a storm in our life as a gift. For, for a larger purpose to do something good in us. Now, now, I'll be honest, not all storms are gifts. Some storms in our life are because we made sinful, destructive choices and we, we brought things in ourselves. Sometimes there are storms in our life because other people's sins affect us. That's the problem. Sin doesn't just stay with me. My sin doesn't stay with me. Your sin doesn't stay with you. We kind of exchange the consequences. And some storms are just because we live in a fallen and broken world. But in this passage, this storm that comes in Jonah's life, it is a gift from God. And it's a sign that God is pursuing Jonah and he's going after him even though Jonah has run away from him. This storm we're about to see is going to introduce grace and mercy to Jonah even though he's living in open rebellion and hostility to God's calling. See, the thing about what Jonah does here in in Jonah 1 through 3 and then in verses 4 and 5 is that Jonah isn't just saying, hey, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to follow that uncomfortable calling. That's too much for me. He isn't just trying to get away from Nineveh. Jonah's trying to get away from God. If your Bible's still open, if you notice at the end of verse 3, it says, and he was fleeing from the Lord's presence. Sometimes what happens in our lives when God calls us to uncomfortable things is we try to get away from what God is calling us to, and then we try to get away from God too. Some of us feel unworthy of being in God's presence. Some of us feel uncomfortable by how God is leading us, and so we try to run from God's presence. But what we learn in the book of Jonah is that God pursues his people. One of my favorite psalms in the, the whole of the 150 psalms in the Bible is Psalm 139. 
And David in that psalm says, God, where can I go that you aren't present? I can go down to the bottom of the seas that you're there. I can go to the tallest mountains that you're there. I can go to the east and the west and the north and the south. There is nowhere that I can run from your presence. And, and if you today don't feel close to God, you don't necessarily feel like the presence of God is strong in your life, I just want to encourage you that your feelings are not the final statement on God's reality. According to Scripture, there is nowhere in all of creation that God doesn't say, that's mine. And there's nowhere in all of creation where God is not present the big theological term we use for it in the church is omnipresence, that God is everywhere. So there's nowhere where you can run from his presence. And so if you have found yourself feeling far from God, what you may find is that God gives you a storm as a gift that he might remind you that he's with you and pursuing you and making a way for you to turn back around. And that's what we see with Jonah. Eventually, they, they, they pray to all the gods they can think of. They run out of gods eventually, and they come down and wake Jonah up, and they go, yo, man, what, what, what's going on? How can you be sleeping through this? You should pray to your God, too. And then Jonah, got, Jonah goes, I, I think it's actually my fault. I think I'm the reason we're in this storm. And they kind of get a little bit shocked when he tells them that. And he says, you, you guys, I'm the problem here. You should throw me into the sea. We should throw you into the sea. No, you're like our paying passenger. Like, that, that's not good business. Hey, what happened in your last ship? Well, the guy who paid to ride with us, we threw him into the sea. Do you want to come on our next, you know, journey? Doesn't really go well for future business. But after trying everything else, he says, look, I'm, I'm not going to hold it against you. This is because of God. You have no other option. You're going to die. And so they pray and they throw Jonah into the sea. And the sea gets peaceful. And at that moment, they all make a commitment to God because they feel like they've had an encounter with God's presence. And then it says in Jonah chapter 2 that a, a great fish came up. This is one of the things you probably got taught wrong in Sunday school. It wasn't a whale. It was a fish. I remember from, you know, growing up that fish are mammals. And maybe they didn't know this back in the 700s BC, you know, the difference between mammals and fish. But it was a fish that swallowed Jonah. And then in the belly of that whale, this is what we, or that fish, see, I'm, I'm learning it here with you says this, this is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The third important truth we learn from Jonah is that our darkest moments are often our most transformational. When you look back on your life and you tell somebody the story of your life, maybe somebody who doesn't know you or you haven't been around for a while, what, what often happens is we tell the stories that were transformational or change agents in our lives. And many of those times were not the times that we were getting promoted, that we were upgrading our houses, that we were taking our most lavish vacations, that we had the most money in the bank. But, but the times that we transformed the most were often the darkest. 
And this is what we see in Jonah's story. He's in the belly of this fish, and he prays this profound prayer. He actually prays his best prayer in his worst moment. And the same thing's often true for us. Some of our best times of prayer, some of our times of most intimacy and connection with God happen when things are the darkest. And for Jonah, what happens in this story is there's a repeated pattern. When you read through Jonah this week, I want you to pay attention to this phrase, Jonah went down. It says that Jonah went down to Joppa to get on the boat. Then it says that Jonah went down into the boat. Then it says later that he went down into the belly of the boat. His story is just down and down and down. He gets thrown into the sea and he goes down into the sea. He then goes down into the belly of the fish. The first part of this book is just down for Jonah. And maybe some of you can relate. You've been in a season where everything just keeps going down and down and down. But as we see in the story of Jonah, sometimes the way down is the way up. Sometimes when you're in the middle of a crisis, the only way is to just go through the crisis, not around or over it, but through it. And for Jonah, he goes down and he meets God in the belly of this fish. And as we'll see later, he then goes up later. And we, with all of our strength and our might, often resist the way down. Only to find ourselves resisting God's work in our lives. And for Jonah, what we find is that his darkest moment was his most transformational. And I just want to encourage you today that if you're in a dark moment, God does some of his best work there. It says here in an earlier part of Jonah that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. For those of you who have been around church for any period of time, you should be have a bell going off in your head right now. And that's... A, Because our fourth lesson is that Jonah's imperfect story points us to the perfect work of Jesus. See, often I think what happens when we read through the Bible is we see these people whose names are attached to books or whose stories that we read, go, man, that person is a hero. Here's the problem. Jonah is not a hero. He's not someone you should model your life after, as we'll see in a little bit. The hero of the book of Jonah is not Jonah. It's God. God's the hero. And what we see in the book of Jonah is that we see again and again, Jonah is an imperfect example of things that later on Jesus is a perfect example of. I I owe credit to Warren Wearsby, whose commentary I'm using in this series. and, And he makes a number of points about how Jesus is greater than Jonah. He said, Jesus is greater in his message, for Jonah preaches a message of judgment, but Jesus preaches a message of grace and salvation. Jonah almost dies for his own sins in the ocean, but Jesus willingly dies for the sins of the world. Jonah's ministry was to one city, but Jesus was the savior of the world. Later on, we're going to see that Jonah obeys God, but not from his heart. Yet Jesus always did what pleased his father. Jonah didn't love the people that he came to preach to, but Jesus had compassion for sinners. And he proved that with his love by dying for them on a cross. 
On the cross outside of a city, Jesus asked God to forgive those who killed him. And yet Jonah, in a little bit, we're going to see, wait outside a city to see if God would kill those that he would not forgive. The hero of the book of Jonah is God. And Jonah's imperfect actions point us to what Jesus ultimately fulfills. Jonah 3. This is after Jonah's out of the fish. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. I feel like God at that moment had a little bit of James Brown in him. You know, get on up, you know. Uh, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. It was one of the largest cities of the ancient world. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Seven words there. Shortest sermon ever. Seven words. Here's what happens. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least the fifth lesson that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. These people who were incredibly godless, the the Ninevites and the Assyrians set the bar in the ancient world for evil activity. When they would conquer a land, they would get the military officials together, chop off various limbs of their body, and then lead them through the conquered city to go, hey, resist us, and this will happen to you. Their temple worship of their false gods and idols would make even the people who watch the most heinous things on the internet today blush. They were evil, wicked people. And yet when the word of God came to them, in seven words recorded here, it says that they repented. They fasted with sackcloth and ashes, a sign in the ancient world of a a broken and repentant heart. And Jonah saw them before this moment as beyond the reach of God. But God didn't. Because God loves the people that we don't like. And no one is beyond the reach of his grace. And so I just want to ask you this morning, who for you are those people that are beyond the reach of God's grace? Who are those people that there's no way in your mind they would ever Receive God's grace. There's no way in your mind that God could actually reach them. Maybe it's the people with whom you differ politically. Maybe it's people for whom have a a different sexuality than you do. Maybe it's people who have a different vision of the good life and, and what our world or our country needs. And those people are not that different than the Ninevites. And if the Ninevites are not beyond the reach of God's grace, then your people that are in your mind or your heart right now are not beyond God's grace either. And here's what I've discovered about God's grace. Many of us don't give God's grace because we've struggled to receive it ourselves. God's grace is one of those things that it's, it's hard to give what you don't have. You mean, I'm just not a, grace, I'm not a grateful person, Scott. I just have a hard time giving grace. Well, that's okay. 
You're not called to give people the grace that you have in you. You're called to give them the grace God has given you to, to pass it on, to pay it forward, to allow yourself to be a conduit. So the question I have for you is, do you really appreciate the grace that you've been given? Do you appreciate the fact that without God's grace, you would be entirely separated from him now and eternally? Do you recognize your brokenness and your sin and your pride was so bad that God's son had to come and die that you might be free? Do you really appreciate the grace and the forgiveness that God has given you? Because if you do, there is this deep reservoir, this bottomless well within you of grace that you can draw from to give to other people that you don't think deserve grace. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Here's what I think is maybe the most interesting part of the book of Jonah, what happens next. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. In, in the original language in the Hebrew, the idea here is that Jonah is angry over evil that has been done. Who did the evil in Jonah's eyes? God. Here's what Jonah says next. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? I called this God. I saw it coming. This is why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. A little dramatic there. But Jonah realizes the problem here. Number six, all too often we want mercy for ourselves and justice for our enemies. All too often we want God to give us mercy and we want him to give our enemies justice. Jonah loved the idea that he was part of God's chosen people, the Israelites, people for whom God would give mercy again and again. But what he didn't like was the potential that God might give their enemies mercy too. And he says, that's why I ran away. Because I knew this is what you would do. The problem with Jonah is that he has a hard heart. And it's not an individual problem. It was a systemic problem in that day. The people of Israel had forgot their calling going all the way back to Abraham. In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 12, Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, this is what God called Abraham to do. Known as Abram then. Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was the calling on Israel, that they weren't the only one who got mercy from God, but God was going to give them mercy so that they could show and share that mercy with the world. The problem was the nation of Israel became a cul-de-sac in the mission of God. When God had called them to be a conduit. 
The mercy is supposed to come to them and then go through them. But the problem with Jonah is he wanted the mercy to stay with him and then he wanted God to give everybody else justice. And I just want to raise the question for you, which of those one or two images are you? Do you want God to give you mercy, but not the people you don't like? Do you want God to give you mercy, but not the people who are opposed to you or who are your enemies? Oh, you want them to get God's justice? The problem is at the end of the day, none of us actually deserve the mercy of God. All of us actually deserve the justice of God. And our hearts are not aligned with God when we want mercy for ourselves and justice for other people. So this week, as you drive around and if you you turn into a cul-de-sac, I live in a cul-de-sac, so this is a daily reminder for me. I just want you to remind yourself, am I a cul-de-sac or am I a conduit? Is God's mercy stopping with me and I'm hoarding it for myself? Or am I recognizing the same calling God gave Abraham, he's given to me, to be a person who shares mercy and not hoards it? Here's how the book of Jonah ends. It says, then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? If you read through Jonah this week, you'll see that God gave Jonah a plant after preaching and it gave him shade, but then God sent a worm and the worm ate through the plant. For those of you who do gardening now, you know what that it's like. You know the anger of that plant being eaten. And Jonah's angry at God that his plant is gone. Is it right for you to be angry about my plant? Yes, it is right. Jonah said, I'm angry enough to die. This is kind of his repeated line in this chapter. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals. Last lesson for today. There's a gap between our heart and God's heart. And that gap should drive us to repentance. Jonah is sitting here and he's angry enough to die because God destroyed his plant. And yet God says, you care more about this plant than you care about these 120,000 people that I made. One of the commentators that I studied this week mentioned that this story in many ways mirrors the, the parable of the prodigal son or the loving father that Jesus tells. In that parable, there's a younger son that runs away from the father and he's far from the father who represents God in the story. And eventually he comes back home. And in many ways, that's kind of Jonah at the beginning of the story. Jonah runs away from God, but God has a heart of a father. And that's why the parable of the prodigal son really should be called the parable of the loving father because it's more about the father than it is the sons. He pursues him loves him, waits for him, forgives him. That's Jonah at the beginning of the story. At the end of the the book of Jonah, Jonah's just mad. He's on the outside of what God's doing, angry enough to die at what God did in the same way that in the parable Jesus tells the older brother is on the outside of the party to celebrate God's relentless love, and he's mad too. And friends, that's how the story ends. In in Matthew 12, the passage I mentioned earlier, Jesus says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, 
something greater than Jonah is here. For those of you who who watch movies, this is a movie that most people wouldn't like. Because it just ends right there. Jonah's mad at God. The people have repented and God has relented. And and Jesus, God asked Jonah, should I care more about the plant or the people? And that's how it's done. We have no idea what Jonah responds. (laughs) We have no idea what God does with Jonah. It's as if we got a book and the page was torn out at the end. That's it. One of the questions I'll ask Jesus when I get to heaven is, hey, what happened to Jonah? Is he here? (laughs) What did he do? Did he repent? Did he turn to you? Did you kill him like he asked you to? What, What happened? I like how Charles Spurgeon remarks on this, though. He says, let's hope that during the rest of his life, Jonah so lived, so as to rejoice in the sparing mercy of God. I want to believe that it's possible that Jonah realized that mercy that God showed them, he could experience too. Before we close the day, I want to offer a couple next steps. And the first one is this. I want to encourage you to identify your uncomfortable calling and to assess your current response to it. What is it that God is leading you to do in your life that puts you outside of your comfort zone? What is that thing that he's leading you to do, that purpose that he has for you that is uncomfortable and, and acknowledge or assess how, you're, how are you responding to it? Are you like Jonah running away from it or are you leaning into it? Number two, I want you to name the people you don't like and prayerfully explore how you can take the gospel to them. See, if you don't embrace the way of Jonah and the way God's calling you, you will go the way of our world, which is just to harden your hearts to the people you don't like and then stay with the people you do. But that is not the path that that Jesus calls us to. He said to go make disciples of all nations, including the nations of people you don't like. We'll never see our world transformed by the mercy of God if we only stay with people who see things the way that we do. And then number three, I want to invite you to read through Jonah this week with the prayer, God, show me the gap between my heart and yours. God, show me where I'm Jonah. And God, allow me the opportunity to repent. Jesus, we thank you that there is so much more here than we realize. We thank you that there is an opportunity for us today that you gave the nation of Nineveh for for us to repent. Jesus, none of us deserve your mercy. None of us deserve your grace. They are unmerited gifts. And Jesus, we confess that so often we have hoarded what you meant to be shared. We confess that so often we have missed the great mercy and grace that you've given us. And because we haven't received it fully, we're not giving it. Jesus, we live in a merciless time. 
a grace drought has swept across our land. We're not going to learn how to give grace and mercy from our social media feeds or our cable news networks. We're only going to learn it from you. And I pray that we would be surprised anew, introduced anew to your mercy and grace. That our brokenness and our failures and our pain and our discomfort and our inadequacy pales in the face of your mercy. Thank you for coming after us when we were like Jonah with your relentless love. We wouldn't be here without it. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.